You may be seated, and good morning. And I also wish you a happy new year and a happy Advent season that lies ahead of us. I was raised in a tradition that did not celebrate Advent, so it was a, quite a pleasant surprise for us when we started coming to Holy Cross about eight years ago uh, to discover this. And, and what I've found is that I truly love Advent. Now, I like Christmas. I've always liked Christmas. What, how, what's there not to like? It's all good, right? But I find that I love especially Advent. And one of the many things I love about Advent is that our politically correct world can't foul it up as they have done with Christmas. My twin brother, Alan, works for a very large multinational corporation that shall remain nameless. They are forbidden from having anything remotely Christmassy on their desks or anywhere in the workplace. It's not even noted in their calendars. So now, as in so many places, it's winter holiday. And isn't that special? <laughs> Come, let's celebrate ice storms, blizzards, frozen pipes. How many of you have done this before, those of you from the north? You don't miss it, do you? No. Enough for my inner curmudgeon. That's, that's just my inner old man talking. Let's get down to business, though. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, noticed saw. Not heard, but saw. So this is a vision concerning Judah and Benjamin. Those are the two southern tribes of the divided kingdom and Jerusalem, the capital. This is a vision that the prophet has from God, of course. And in our text, he sees three things. Number one, the mountain of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days, or last days as it's usually translated, that the mountain of the Lord, of, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established when? In the last days. Now I'm sometimes asked, fairly often for that matter, do you think we're living in the last days? My answer is yes, absolutely. How do I know that? Because we've been living the last days for some 2,000 years. You see, the last days are the days between the two advents of Christ. At his first advent, which we celebrate at Christmas, and uh, at, at that advent, our Lord came to us, which is what the word advent means. It means arrival or coming. He came to us as he made clear to bear our sins in his own body on the cross to be our Savior. Thus, in the Christmas story in Luke's account, chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that the angels declared to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's Bethlehem, of course. Following our Lord's resurrection and ascension to the Father, St. Peter in his sermon during the Feast of Pentecost, that Jewish celebration that took place 50 days after Passover, quotes the prophet Joel saying these words, and in the last days, notice, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, thus signifying that the last days were already, even then, underway. The same in the epistle to the Hebrews, addressed to those Jewish followers of Jesus who were scattered throughout the entire Roman Empire, were told these words long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
So back to Isaiah. The temple, Solomon's temple in the days of Isaiah, and later the rebuilt temple during the days of Jesus, was necessary as the place where the priests daily offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, those sacrifices that were required by the law of God given through Moses. But as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service. Now, why do they stand? Why why did they do that? Well, because there were no chairs. (laughs) Well, all right, why weren't there chairs? Well, because they weren't needed. And so the the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, every priest stands daily at his service, often repeating the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Their work literally was never done. But, as the writer goes on to say, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Still no chairs, but meaning his work was done as he cried out on the cross it is finished it is completed now that beloved is the very essence of the gospel in his vision isaiah speaks not so much of the temple though as he does of the mountain upon which the temple is built mount zion the mountain of the lord as isaiah calls it that too strongly suggests that salvation the salvation god provides has something to do with mountains, and we'll talk about that a little later, both before, during, and after the days of the early temple. We see this, and here's some examples. Early on in Genesis chapter 9, we're told that Noah's ark came to rest safely upon a mountain called, does anybody remember? Ararat. Ah, some of you paid attention in Sunday school, didn't you? All right, Mount Ararat, where God made a covenant, and that covenant was his promise that he would never judge the earth by flood again. That mountain, so, so then, was a place of salvation for those who were aboard the ark. Later, God commanded Abraham to offer up his only son, Isaac, on a mountain called, it's a little tougher, anyone? Oh, Moriah, Mount Moriah. Seeing his faith and his willingness to obey this strange and terrible command, Genesis 22 says God provided a ram to take Isaac's place. That, of course, is a clear picture of our Lord's death in our place. And it was at Mount Horeb that God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, empowering him to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Another picture of our salvation is God's deliverance from the enslaving powers of sin in our lives. And then uh, later in the book of Exodus, God reveals his laws for his people through Moses at another mount, Mount Sinai, his commandments, the do's and the don'ts that we see in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and others. And also that system of sacrifices, instructions for when the people broke God's commandments, yet another picture of our salvation. Now all of these really point to another mountain, only not so much a mountain, I would say more of a hill, a place called Golgotha. That was the place of execution, an unclean place, a place of shame where our Lord gave his own life that you and I might have the forgiveness of our sins. Now, Isaiah's first readers and hearers needed to know this forgiveness. They needed to know this. Listen to his words as he begins his letter in the previous chapter, uh, verse 1 of Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And here's what God says to them. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Ah, sinful nation, 
a people laden, weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, separated from God. And so are we. The second part of Isaiah's vision is that of the nations, plural, not just Israel, but of the nations flowing or streaming up to the mountain. That's a strange kind of way of putting it, is it not? Water flowing uphill, water doesn't do that. It really doesn't. You, gravity just assumes that it's always going to flow downhill. We'll say a little more about that later. And all the nations, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and all the nations will flow to it. And many people shall come uh, and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, first of all, who are these nations? Isaiah uses the Hebrew word goyim, which is plural for the word goy, which means non-Jews. In Isaiah uh, he, he uses the Hebrew word, uh, or in Isaiah's day, that would mean that all the surrounding nations were included in this. Uh, the Gentiles, meaning the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, sitting where Israel does, right there at the, at the cornerstone, uh, if you will, the crossroads of the world of Africa and Asia and Europe. They, they were right in the midst of all these other nations, and so there was often warfare between them as well. But... Uh, here we have an entirely different picture. We have the nations flowing or streaming in vast numbers up to the mountain of the Lord, not by force or not, not there to conquer as they had done and plunder, but rather to find salvation. Come, he says, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Maybe it's just me, but do you find it a little odd, a little strange that the temple is called here the house of the God of Jacob and not Israel. Jacob and his brother Esau were twins, sons of Isaac and Rebekah, grandsons of Father Abraham and Sarah. After encountering Jehovah God personally in a moment of crisis alone, God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And his descendants have been known as Israelites or Israelis as we would say today ever since as is the sovereign nation of Israel. So why then the house of the God of Jacob? Not wanting to make too big a deal out of this, but I believe in part the answer is found in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 9. When Rebekah, the mother, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told this, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's Romans 9, 10 through 13. So it was not Esau, the older brother, who would be the father of the nation. That would have been the, the normal thing. But, uh, and, and the one through whom the Messiah would come, by, by the way. But it would be through Jacob. Now, if you find that a bit puzzling, uh, a bit disturbing, or perhaps even unfair, well, good luck. Good, good luck is, is yours today. Because Paul knew, Paul knew that many people would. And so he replies in the next verse, what shall we say then? Is there injustice or injustice on God's part? He knew a lot of people would think that. 
And his answer is, by no means. And here he explains, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, injustice or unfairness suggests that we have been deprived of something that we're entitled to. Either ethically or morally or illegally, if we're entitled to something, we don't get it. We say, that's not fair. That's not just. But beloved, that's not how our salvation works. God mercifully does not give us what we deserve. Aren't you glad? <laughs> and not only that, but he graciously gives us what we do not deserve. Again, we can be very, very glad for that. I don't know about you, but I do not want God to treat me justly or fairly. <laughs> I need mercy and I need grace, and so do we all. The story of Jacob and Esau reveals to us that the God of Jacob, before he renamed him Israel, was and is a God of patience, who slowly but surely and graciously transformed this selfish, greedy, conniving, sorry excuse for a man, and transformed him into a man of honesty and integrity. Genesis 32 tells us the climax of this story. The little headers that you see in your Bible that tell you here's what this part of the chapter is about, they, they almost never get this one right. It, it still amazes me that that's true. Invariably, they will say something like this. This is the, the scene where Jacob wrestles with God. And that's not what happened. The text says, there wrestled with Jacob a man. And of course, that man is no doubt a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a manifestation of God. It is God wrestling with Jacob. You see the difference? Whose very name means cheat, swindler. He is patiently and lovingly, he has been and will continue, transforming him into the one whose actions and attitudes reflect the grace of God. His new name, Israel, yes, uh, in, in, in the way it's actually pronounced, Yisrael, El being the word for God, meaning literally God contends or God fights. So God picked this fight with Jacob, and he finished it, and so it is with us. We are saved by the grace and mercy of God alone. Now, back to Isaiah. This movement of people coming to the holy mountain continued long after Isaiah, and it does so to this day. Among those Goyim, those Gentiles, were the wise men, those Gentiles from the east, probably Persia, who came looking for the Messiah. Then there was the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus met. We know her that way. We don't know her name. The Samaritans were even more despised than the Goyim, the Gentiles, because they were descendants of Abraham who intermarried with Gentiles hundreds of years before. But that woman also came to be a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but she led many other people to Christ as well. And then there were those Gentile converts to Judaism that just happened to be in Jerusalem when Peter preached that first sermon, as I mentioned earlier, during the Feast of Pentecost, who by the thousands became believers in Jesus and took the good news of the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire from one end of it to the other. And then there were those Jewish sinners in Jesus' day, like Zacchaeus, the wee little tax collector, who after dining with our Lord was transformed by the gospel, uh, changing him from a, a dishonest, uh, traitorous, thieving man into an honest and generous man. 
We see this happening all through the book of Acts. Our lectionary readings, our daily office readings, we just finished the book of Acts recently, and I love the book of Acts. As you read through it, you just see this time and time and time again of God drawing people to the hill, drawing people to the presence of God through the apostles and, and through others. And it's still happening to this day. Look at Africa. I, I just grabbed these this past week. I mean, you can find these statistics all over the place. In, in Africa, in 1900, the percentage of all Africans who were Christians, 9%. 9. Now, 44%. And growing. Explosive growth is also happening in communist China. We read wonderful things happening there. Where, where a place where the official state religion is atheism and where it is totally illegal to teach your children the things of God or any, any religious training whatsoever. At the current rate of growth, I read this past week, within 30 years, communist China, will, or rather Christians will constitute in communist China 30% of the population. 30% of one and a half billion people. If you want to do it in zeros, that's 500 million Christians. That's a lot of believers. The third thing the prophet Isaiah sees, God the judge. God the judge. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What is envisioned here is God's judgment and the ensuing peace that it brings on a global scale. That judgment which occurs at the end, on the very last day of the last days, judgment day. Now I point this out because the prospect of a, a true, just, and permanent, lasting world peace on every level is not going to become a reality till the very last day of these last days. Now, I don't mean to sound cynical about that, or, and I'm by no means suggesting that we abandon all efforts at making peace among ourselves and among the nations. God forbid that we do that. These words of Isaiah are inscribed on a wall at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Some of you have no doubt probably seen that. That's a noble and lofty ideal, but those who, as verse 4 says, beat their swords into plowshares are only those who, as verse 3 says, have come to the mountain of the God of Jacob to do what? To learn God's ways and to walk in his paths because it is then and only then that we can have lasting peace, not only with God, but with one another and become instruments of peace globally in our relationships with one another, in our families, in our communities, and in our church as well. And so in Advent, we recognize that we are living between our Lord's two Advents. And we are called to embrace the expectation for that time when Christ will indeed return to the earth and will fulfill in their entirety those promises that have been proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. But for now, Isaiah calls us all out of darkness. He says in verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The words of the prophet are meant to fill us with hope, a hope that God's word will be enacted in us as individuals today, in our families, our communities, our church, that what has been promised will indeed come true among us. Advent declares that God's light is coming into the world, just as it did so long ago in Bethlehem, 
Our job is to be awake and to be ready, looking and listening for it to be not only revealed in us, but more than that, to be revealed through us to others. Remembering that as Isaiah later says, we ourselves are, and here I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we are the people who walked in darkness. You remember those days? Some of you do. Some of you do. We are the people who walked in darkness but had seen a great light. And we are among those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness but on whom the light has shone. God's light. Now, what's the practical takeaway for all of this? What does walking in the light look like? That seems like a nice sentiment, but what does that really look like in our daily lives here today in the nasty here and now in the darkness around us? Well, my colleagues and I could preach on that subject every Sunday till next year's Advent and still not scratch the surface. That is, that is part of the grist of much of what uh, the, the scriptures and particularly the New Testament is about is how, what does this look like? Uh, Advent, when we speak of Advent and speak of peace, real peace on earth in the real world, St. Paul tells us, it gives us just a glimpse of that in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, what it looks like for those who follow Christ to really walk in the light in these wise and practical words, and I'll close with these. Here's what he says in Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, and I'm really glad that if possible is in there, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Some people just will not be lived with peaceably. But our end of it is to live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Drive him crazy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pray with me, please. Father, our prayer this morning is, and my prayer for your people is that we would heed the words of your Old Testament prophet Isaiah that not just at this season, but for all of our days, through every season, that we indeed will come and walk in the light of the Lord. And may your light shine forth, not only in us, but through us, to all those around us who desperately need it in this dark, dark world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.